Good morning. For those of you, your first time here, it, you just pronounce my name like it looks. Guest, speaker. You can call me Mr. Speaker. My friends call me Guest. Uh, just kidding aside, we, we do this um, for, I think, I think, a good reason. My real name is Tim. Uh, you can call me Tim. You can call me T-Bone. You can call me Timbo Slice. You can call me T-Bone the Collector. You can call me Hey Guy. You can call me Molly's Husband. You can call me Josiah's Dad. I usually answer to all of that. Um, not all at once, though. That would be overwhelming. But I go by guest speaker here. We don't publish our names, uh, my wife or mine, particularly with our last name, just because Olive Branch believes in reaching the nations. And some of those nations are considered what we would call restricted access, meaning that the government and the society or the government or society are hostile toward Christianity in some way. And Molly and I, hopefully this July, with y'all's help, are moving to a country that is considered restricted access. And so because of that, this country is very tech-savvy. We try to avoid publishing our names. You can't find us on, on the website anywhere. Um, so on Sunday mornings and stuff like this, things that get published digitally, thus internationally, are always, we, we call ourselves guest or a guest speaker. And so that's why we do that. I just wanted to get that out of the way um, because I have to. So if, if you have questions about that or, or want to follow up in that, hit me up after service if you can catch me. I'm like the gingerbread man. I'm all around. But there's that. Let's go ahead and uh, we're going to start a new service today or a new, yeah, new service. Stick around for the one o'clock. Don't. I won't be here. I'll be sleeping. Um, but we're starting a new series today called Undefeated, talking all about how no matter what comes against it, the gospel will always remain undefeated. Amen? All right. Today, we, we're going to look at how we are people of the undefeated. So as we hold fast, hold firm to the gospel, which we've received in truth, we will live a life of peace and victory. And while it may not always be comfortable and happy, because we have Christ and our identity is rooted and founded in him, no matter what comes against us, the gospel will remain undefeated. We remain in the gospel. Let's go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the privilege and the freedom to simply just show up, Lord, that we can live in a society where it's not considered restricted access to get the truth of who you are. Lord, we, we pray that this time would be a time of focus. Would you still our minds? With all of these distractions and worries we come in here with, Lord, would you give us the strength and the ability to lay them at your feet that we might be able to focus on your face? Lord, we ask that this text would be a text that by your spirit would be brought to life for us this morning in a way that wouldn't simply be a, oh, hey, that's a cool moment, but Lord, that this would change our lives, that this would be a moment of change for us, that instead of being something we do on the weekends, Lord, this Sunday morning, this service, this text, this message, this moment in our life in communion with you and our fellow believers would be a springboard into life-changing service for your name and for your kingdom. Lord, it's in your name we pray. Amen. So we're going to be in Acts chapter 8 today. Uh, if you use the Bible in the seat in front of you, that's page 916. You use an English Standard Version, page 916. Use your app. You know where it is. For those of you using your own Bible, find Acts 7, flip one more chapter, Acts 8. It's cool how we work chronologically like that. You're going to be able to read along with us. So Acts 8, verse 1. We're just going to read the first sentence. And Saul approved of his execution. What's going on? What are we opening up to? If you were here last week, you heard a really good message by Pastor Greg um, about the stoning of a, of a man in the church named Stephen. 
And what we see here is Stephen is, has an active and effective ministry in most, many of the synagogues. And because of that, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem pull him out and put him on trial. And Stephen, instead of weaning back or, or hesitating, stands strong in his faith and in his vision of Christ and proclaims the gospel to them. But these people's hearts were so hardened to the gospel that they were enraged by the words that Stephen used. And so starting in verse 58, it says, Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. This is Stephen. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he died. He fell asleep. He passed away. So we see this. We're first introduced to Saul here. And Saul is... He's somebody at whose feet they throw their jackets. Now, this isn't like Saul just happened to be standing in the most convenient place to throw jackets. And they were like, can you move? I want to put my jacket down. And he was like, no, this is a good view. And then they just threw his jackets down. When Luke records this, he's actually denoting that Saul has authority in this situation. And so as they lay their jackets at his feet, it's much like when Jesus' triumphal entry, and they're laying their jackets and stuff at Jesus to, to set the way, they're denoting authority to Saul. So then when we pick up in verse 1 of chapter 8, it says, And Saul approved of his execution. This is kind of closing the scene of Stephen's execution in a way. Because this is saying Saul approved of it. And this isn't like, I'm Saul of Tarsus and I approve of this execution kind of thing. Like This is like Saul saying, I cast my lot for his execution. Not just like I assent to the execution, but I approve and I'm for the execution. So Saul is, is given ownership in a really strong way of the death of Stephen. Does that make sense? Okay, now picture this with me, all right? It's like 9 o'clock at night, maybe 9.30. You're sitting in your chair, in your seat, in your spot. You kind of have that end of day, right? The work is done. The day is over. If you're like me, you've just spent 20 or 30 minutes cuddling your son, singing to him, praying over him. You've laid him in his bed. You've put a blanket over him. And now you're sitting on the couch with a quart of ice cream and a spoon and your wife. And if you're single, maybe you don't have your spouse, but you hopefully, by God's grace, still have a quart of ice cream and a spoon. And you're just reflecting on the day, sharing, sharing the highs and, and, and the lows, sharing life, reflecting on the day putting it behind you, looking forward to the rest you're about to have, the peace you're about to experience in sleep, planning maybe for the day before, and suddenly there's a pounding at your door, this anxious knocking, and you look through your window and you see that it's a close friend, and you go to the door, you open the door, surprised to find him there, and he says, get out, he's coming. Now, that probably doesn't make sense, but imagine that there's somebody in your society who has the legal authority to come to your house to rip you out of your life, and to throw you in prison because of your association with a person. Now, you have three options at this point, right? You have fight, you have flight, or, or not really an option, but some people accidentally take it freeze, right? So first option, fight. You're going to stand up, and when he gets here, you're going to declare your rights to him. You're going to stand up for what you believe in your, in your association, and you're not going to let them take you down gently. But here's the thing. This guy has a track record of undefeated success taking people like you away and committing them to prison, potentially even death. You have a son. You have children you have to think about. This guy's going to win. You're going to go to prison. He could take your wife with you. So do you fight or do you pick the second option, flight? 
Gather the, the, the most valuable things you have with you. Make sure your wife can get something. Grab your kids, wake them up, say, I'm sorry, I'll explain it to you later. You can't take your toys. You can't take all your favorite blankets. You have to leave your teddy bears and all your stuffed animals. We have to go now. I'll explain it to you later. And you uproot your entire life in haste, running through the cover of darkness, past all of these houses, seeing all the lights off, realizing that these people are sleeping comfortably, undisturbed, with their lives going to continue just the same day tomorrow, while your life is in turmoil. So you have flight. Or maybe you have freeze, moment of indecision, panic, leading to moment of indecision and panic. Eventually, you're not able to get things together. You're not able to build a defense. Saul comes, kicks in your door, grabs you and says, you're coming with me. I'm taking you to prison. Your wife's pleading, your children's begging makes no difference. You're taken off to prison. Life ruined, reputation destroyed, family upheaved. Children potentially orphans. That's the image we pick up in Acts. So Saul proved of his execution, and then it says this. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Now devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So we have this imagery of what was once this great movement in Jerusalem, this movement, now suddenly opposition, and not just opposition, strong opposition in the form of persecution comes against the church in Acts chapter 8. Great persecution. We see that all are scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except for the apostles. So what we're seeing here, as we've seen in the last few chapters from Acts 6 up, We're seeing probably the majority of these people are a Greek background, Hellenistic is what we would call them believers, who probably at one time were Greek following the Greek religious system and then gave their lives over to the Judaic, Judeo religious system. And then upon hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ, gave their life to Christ. And so in Acts chapter 6, when we see the, the Hellenistic widows, the Greek background believing widows, were not getting fed. And then remember Pastor Greg pointed out, you see all these names? They're Greek names that they appointed to take care of the widows. So the, the Jewish leaders, the apostles, were able to say, look, these Greek people are going to know the needs more effectively and meet them more ably. So we're appointing these people who are full of the Spirit and equal to take care of you. So these Greek followers. And then Stephen is one of those deacons who then has a ministry. And so imagine you have this thousands of years of heritage and you're in the tribunal of Jews, and then suddenly you bring Stephen, some guy who's trying to take people away from your belief in your system, come before you and say, you killed Jesus. You killed the one your prophets told you about. You've got a record of this. You have a track record of killing God's messengers, and it ultimately, ultimately came to the point where you killed God himself. You would be enraged, probably at least think about killing him, well, they did. And so now we see this Hellenistic persecution where the, the Greek background believers are sent out, scattered among Judea and Samaria, but the apostles remain there in Jerusalem. And there are some things we can gain from this. We can understand, one, that the apostles stay. It's a brave thing for the apostles to stay in Jerusalem. And this, this is maybe because they were Jewish background believers, and so it was more difficult to rage persecution against them because they were seen as insiders yet outside of the Jewish movement. Now, it could be just because of the acts that God was doing through the apostles that they were afraid to touch them or come against them. But ultimately what we learn here is that we see in verse 4 
those who were scattered went about preaching the word. And so we understand that while the government of the church was central, while the leaders remained in Jerusalem, the Hellenistic church members, followers, were the ones who went out and took the gospel out of Jerusalem. And so I want us to understand this truth that's, that's, that's illustrated here for us. God is God in the good and the bad times. What I mean by that is this is, this is seemingly, this could be the end of the church. Certainly the, the end of the church as we know it at this point. But now because of persecution, those who are scattered are not just fleeing for their lives. Picture this. As they're gathering their most important valuables, as they're scattered and sent out, as they lose their job, as they lose their social circle, as they lose their family circle, as they potentially lose generations of family identity, as they lose relationship with family, having to explain to your children why they won't see their cousins again, having to explain to your wife how we're going to have to start over a brand new with nothing, they take the gospel with them. Because they understand that God is God in the good and the bad times because the gospel is so central to who they are that their identity isn't in their social circle. It isn't in their job. It isn't in their family relations. It isn't in all these different things. Their identity is in Christ. Because they understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. They understand that they sinned just as all of us have sinned, but God created us for something more. And when we we sin against this holy, righteous, eternal God, we condemn ourselves to an eternity separated from him and his goodness. We condemn ourselves to an eternity in God's wrath, God's punishment, and ultimately God's precise judgment. But God in his great love for us, as they understood his great love for them, sent his son to live a perfect life that we could never live to make that relationship possible and died the gruesome death that we deserve his blood paying for our debt. And three days later, by the immaculate power of God, was raised again from the dead in victory over death, in victory over sin, so that they and we could have a right new relationship with God. And so they understand that though they're oppressed, They're not destroyed. Though they're persecuted, they're not abandoned because they know that God is God in the good and the bad times. No matter how drastically awful this is. Look at verse 3. Saul was ravaging the church. This Greek word translates pretty distinctly. It's an an idea of war, all-out war. Saul is committing war against these believers. This, this translates outside of the Bible. They use this term when they're talking about torture. Paul is committing heinous, egregious acts against the followers. In the Psalms, we see this word used. It says, talking about Israel and the heritage of who they are. The psalmist says, you brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. This imagery of, of Israel being brought out of Egypt and planted in the promised land. You cleared the ground for it. You sent the nations away. It took deep root. It filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. Why then, here we go, have you broken down its walls so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? We've become a plunder for the nations. The boar from the forest ravages it runs it underfoot with no care for it, breaking off branches and and condemning it to death. All that move in the field feed on it. 
So when we think of this ravaging of the church, we, we see this, this imagery of destruction and death. And uh, spoiler alert, if you don't want to know the results, look away now. Saul becomes someone else, and he later testifies to who he was and, and the, the acts he committed against the church. So in Acts 26, he says this, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. He's not sugarcoating it. And so this helps us understand if God is God in the good and in the bad times, we need to understand the God of the high is the God of the lows. The God of Acts chapter 2 is the God of Acts chapter 8. And so in the good times, we praise God for the things that he's done, he's doing, he's going to do, and we hold fast to our hope in the gospel. And in the bad times, we praise God for who he is, what he's done, what he's doing, what he's going to do, and we hold fast to the hope of the gospel finding our identity in him and him alone. And if we remember from Acts chapter 5, verse 39, in Gamaliel's speech about the people of the way, the followers of Christ, he says, guys, maybe we should just let it run its course because if it's not of God, it'll disappear. But if we oppose it and come against it, we may eventually be seen as being against God himself. And so God, refusing to be defeated, the gospel remaining undefeated in verse 4, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. And then we get reintroduced to this guy named Philip, who we met in Acts chapter 6 with the, with the deacons. Verse 5, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits came out, and many who were possessed, crying with a loud voice of many. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. Ultimately, this is our application. If God is God in the good and the bad times, and if we truly find our identity in who Christ is, what he's done, and what he's called us to do, we ought to love, live, and share Christ wherever we go, whatever the cost. Because we, we understand that no matter the cost here, Christ paid for it all. No matter what we go through here, it pales in comparison to the glory we get to partake in in eternity with him. So let us be people who love, live, and share Christ wherever we go. This is something I enjoy. Philip, it just says in verse 5, went down to the city of Samaria. Samaria is a region, not a city. Many, many times this translates to a city in Samaria. Luke doesn't care about the location. City doesn't matter. What matters is the message. And so he says, so Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits came out of many who were possessed, crying out with a loud voice. Many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. Let's compare this city in Samaria, unnamed, in their reception of the gospel to what's going on in Jerusalem. Luke is contrasting now and giving us this image. Jerusalem, there's carnage. There's a ravaging of the people of God there. But as they disperse, as Philip goes to the city proclaiming the Christ, and God goes before him and with him doing these mighty works, 
to proclaim his glory and his power over all things. We understand it through this that God is not restricted. We see this here. God is not restricted to a city. He's leaving Jerusalem with this gospel. God is not restricted to a heritage. We've seen Jews and Hellenists, and now we see Samaritans. God is not restricted to a heritage, a culture, a people group, a past. God is moving out into the Samaritans now, who are considered like half-breeds. Anybody here listen to Cher? Right? Half-breeds. I'm not going to sing it. Look it up. But don't look up the music video. Just look up the lyrics. I'm not kidding. Don't, don't go, yeah. Okay, anyway, so, so he's moving out. So who better, though, think about this, to take the gospel to these outcast Samaritans than a cast-out Hellenist? And so, of course, God goes before him, and God is not restricted by any sort of power. Look in verse 9. Philip, this, this deacon, this lay leader, this person who's not a professional, taking the word of God, proclaiming the Christ, God working through him. And then in verse 9, but there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was great. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he'd amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. So enter Simon, right? This guy is like the Kanye West of his time. Right, like, like introducing the world's greatest rock star, ladies and gentlemen, me, Kanye West, Yeezy, right? But here, Simon is walking through going, hey guys, I don't know if you know this, I'm a big deal, right? Like, like, like Ron Burgundy, I don't know how to say this, but I'm kind of a big deal. Simon is going through the city proclaiming this, and he's doing these feats of, of sleight of hand, of magic, that convince these people that he's a big deal. From the least to the greatest, people pay attention to Simon. They want to see the thing he's going to do. They want to see what he's going to, how he's going to amaze them. And yet, here is Philip, this guy, who's just been kicked out of Jerusalem. He's here proclaiming the gospel. He's not one of the apostles, and yet God is doing these amazing things through him. But you know when they believe? Did you see it? It's verse 12. All these great signs, these great things are being done. And then you see here in verse 12, but when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God, in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. I want us to understand this. God is not restricted by Saul's persecution or by Simon's sleight of hand. God goes before his people as they focus on the gospel, desiring to make Christ and Christ alone known, seeking to make his name great among the nations. God goes with them. And God's people wanting to make him known is an Old Testament thing. God's desire to be known is not new. In Psalm 67, we see this. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations of the earth. Sit on that. Let the peoples praise you. 
Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. Why? Because you judge the peoples with equity, not playing favorites. Precise. And you guide the nations upon earth. You are in control. Rest in that. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. And as we see Philip doing his ministry here, this is just fulfilling what Jesus told them was going to happen. Acts 1.8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. What's happening is exactly what Jesus happened, said would happen. The thing is, I don't think it happened exactly how they thought it was going to happen. Because you see, what, what could look like an end is really just a landing. You know, when you're going upstairs, and you reach this point where it levels off, and if you keep walking, and you don't pay attention, you go off the edge, and it seems like that's the end. But you turn around, and there are more stairs. And so the church in Jerusalem is going, and with Saul ravaging the church, it seems as if it could be the end. But the church changes direction in God's guidance and keeps going. And now the city in Samaria, even Simon himself believed. He's so astounded by the things and the signs that are being done by Philip here that even he himself believes. And it says, seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Ultimately, this is what I want us to understand, that we should live a life that supports what we proclaim. What I mean by that is Philip lived a life empowered by God. And Philip proclaimed the gospel. It wasn't either or. It was both and. He not just lived a life empowered and, and guided by the Spirit of God, but he proclaimed the good news, do you see that? About the kingdom of God and the, the name of Jesus Christ. And he baptizes them. And so we've, we've got this, this imagery flipping back and forth now where we started in Jerusalem with Saul ravaging the church. But because of that, God utilizing that sort of as a wine press and as the juice comes out. So now this, the, the gospel is scattered. The, the members of the church are taken abroad to Judea and Samaria. And we see Philip's ministry here starting in, in some city in Samaria. But now we shoot back to Jerusalem. We take a look now at the apostles' council. It says this. In verse 14, Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they'd only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. So we have this interesting picture of the council of apostles being informed, news has got back now that the gospel has spread to Samaria, that Philip has gone out, that a city has, has given their lives to the gospel of Christ, and they've been baptized. And so they send them Peter and John, because they still have some work to do. But Peter and John, I think, are an interesting choice. They're kind of the heavy hitters of the apostles' crew, right? Like, they were some of Jesus' closest homies. Like, they were the inner circle, if you will, of Jesus' group. And so they had a really close relationship to him, and they're leaders in the early church. And so as they go, this is not the early church just sending somebody out to say, like, hey, welcome to the crew. Glad you can make it. This is literally like the, the president and the vice president going to welcome this group to the family. 
And so what we see in this situation um, is, is these two heavy hitters now are going to lay their hands, are going to fellowship with, are going to welcome to the fold a new group of people, a new people group. I also think it's interesting, though, because in Luke chapter 9, I think verse 57, um, this is the scene where John is one of the apostles or one of the disciples who the Samaritans don't, like, don't convert to Jesus. And John literally says, like, hey, can we kill them? And not just, like, ah, just, like, starve them out. Literally, like, hey, can we, like, lightning maybe? Maybe get some thunder in there. Just completely wipe them off the map because they don't turn to you. And now John has to go back and welcome these people to the fold. Like maybe John's like, oh, that's what you wanted. This was the plan. Okay. So Peter and John go. They come down and they pray for them. They lay their hands on them and they receive the Holy Spirit. Now let's slow down a little bit. Because if we just read this at face value and move along, this can lead to some really wonky theology. And I don't think you should ever read the Bible for face value or at face value or skip too quickly through it. So we're going to slow down and we're going to dissect this a little bit. Because we see here a potential issue, right? Because the apostles hear this, but they come to them and pray for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they'd only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And so here we have an issue. The Holy Spirit has not yet entered the mix completely. What I mean by this is the apostles have to go lay their hands on this new group of people that they might receive the Holy Spirit. And it's interesting because is this like Philip baptized them wrong? Because Jesus tells us to go make disciples of all nations, and he says, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And was like Philip just so overwhelmed he forgot about the Holy Spirit as he's dunking people? And I don't think that's the, I don't think that's the issue. Because I don't think we should ascribe too much weight to how we baptize. The baptism is a symbol. But this is what's going on here. Philip himself, as we remember in Acts chapter 6, when he's appointed, in order to be appointed as a deacon, he had to have been marked by and filled with the Spirit. And we, we see here Luke doesn't say he left anything out. He proclaims to them the Christ in verse 5, and in verse 12 he proclaims to them the good news of the kingdom of Christ. And they're baptized in that. And so I don't think this is an issue of whether Philip is leaving anything out in the gospel, because Luke would have mentioned that. Luke gives you a clear portrait of what, of what Philip proclaims, and it's the gospel. And so does Philip just forget, and so this is necessary? I don't think that's the issue here. What's going on here is what you see in Acts chapter 2 is anytime a new people group, as the church is established, becomes part of the fold of Christ, becomes a Christian, God goes before them and does these mighty works. And so in Acts chapter 2, you see it when the Jews and Hellenists become believers. There's this work of the Spirit, and it's very clear and evident. God is saying, they belong to me. Now here we are in Acts chapter 8 with the Samaritans. God is going with the disciples, the apostles, so that they don't miss this, working in the same way, saying, they belong to me. And then in Acts chapter 9, Peter is going to go to the household of Cornelius, the Gentiles, now another group of people, and the Holy Spirit is going to fall as if God is telling them, don't miss this, they belong to me. All the way into Acts chapter 19, when these followers of John the Baptist are found, and they say, well, we received John's baptism, so they baptize them again, and the Spirit falls as if God is saying, they belong to me. So just as God clears out Canaan, 
opening the promised land for Israel. Now, in miraculous ways and signs and wonders, God is going before the church in these early days, establishing them in this miraculous way, saying, I go before you. I'm clearing this out. I will not be restricted. Live a life devoted to me. I will go before you. I will open this up. These people belong to me. Don't hear me saying I don't believe in miracles. Please, I believe in miracles. But I believe that miracles are secondary to the gospel. I believe that the text clearly says we should not be seeking miracles for miracles' sake. We should be seeking Christ, seeking to be God-centered, gospel-driven people, and let God be God. And so we need to focus on the gospel. Just as here, they're saying we need to do this. So they, they lay their hands on this people group, welcoming them to the fold, and God moves in this big, unmistakable way so that nobody misses the message, they belong to me. But then verse 18 Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Okay. i got to point this out right now. Jesus is the Lord. He is not a supplement. Do not treat him like a supplement. What I mean by that is, the people in the beginning of Acts get this. Christ is Lord. Their life belongs to him. Do not come to Christ as if you have something to offer or bargain with. Jesus isn't something you add to your morning routine so that you have a better day. Jesus isn't something you add to your morning routine or whatever so that you look better in public. Jesus isn't something you add to your life so that your family is better. Jesus isn't something you add to this or that to make things stronger or better. Jesus is Lord. He is your life. And so here we have this this picture of Simon saying, hey, give me this power. I want to buy this. I love Peter's response. Peter, not one to mince words, looks at him and says this. Verse 20. May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. I love it. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Peter literally turns to Simon and says, to hell with you and your money. You have no skin in the game. You think you can purchase this. You think this is something for your personal gain. You think this is something that you can bargain with. You think this is something you can buy. You don't understand the gospel. And you can understand this because Peter has seen people who have skin, literally, in the game. Philip is somebody who fleed persecution. Peter knows what it means to have skin in the game. And Christ is Lord. So he looks at him and he says that. But then Peter also sees not just Simon, but he sees into Simon. He says, you don't have skin in the game the intent of your heart, you need to repent. You need to turn from that. You need to beg God's forgiveness and lean on and press into his mercy with the hope that he will forgive you. And he says this, for I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. What Peter's saying here is, I see you. You're trying to put on a front. You're trying to act like you're a big deal. You're trying to act like you've got it all together, but I see you're struggling. There's something going on inside of you. You need, to turn to, you need to turn to God. You need to rely on him. You need to repent from what you're doing because the way you're treating God is not right. You're plunging yourself deeper and deeper and moving yourself further and further 
Turn away from your life. Turn to Christ. Rest in his mercy. And I love that Simon further shows that he does not have a personal relationship with Jesus because he says to Peter in verse 24, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you've said may come upon me. Simon is still acting as if he doesn't have a personal relationship with God in Christ. He's asking Peter to intercede for him. When we all, if we understand the gospel, know there's one intercessor between God and man, and that is Christ and Christ alone. So my encouragement for you today would be check yourself before you wreck yourself. Right? Think about it. What faith do you have? Why do you come to Christ? Because I guarantee you, every single one of us in this room has and will have the opportunity to varying degrees of severity to either forsake the world and follow Jesus or forsake Jesus and follow the world. I would encourage you to seek Christ for Christ. Who is Christ to you? Because the people in the beginning of the chapter, they get it. Christ is their king. Christ is their identity. And so when the hard times come, when they're pressed, Christ comes out. They're pressed, but they're not crushed. They're persecuted, but they're not abandoned. They're struck down, but they're not destroyed. They're come against, but they're undefeated. But the faith of Simon, this faith where you just add Jesus to the mix, you know, it's a lot easier to see in Asia when you see all these different statues and statuettes of these different gods, and then there's like a little plastic Jesus in the mix. But guys, it's really easy to see. And God sees in your life, and he knows. He sees that you're putting on a front, but he sees that gall of bitterness. He sees that struggle inside of you. And I would want to encourage you, if you're seeking Christ for anything other than his absolute rule over your life, if you're seeking Christ for what he can do with you instead of what he's done for you, I would challenge the very foundation of your salvation. There is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved than that of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you with nothing to offer. Lord, clinging to these earthly idols of identity, technology, society, money. And Lord, we have messed it up. Father, for those here this morning who maybe don't know you, Lord, who don't have a saving relationship with you, I pray that you would work in their hearts. Lord, that they would see the need for you, that they would admit that they have wronged you, that they would turn from all these things they've been pursuing, which only lead them away from you and toward wrath. But Lord, that they would turn from that to your love, that they would rest in your grace and your mercy, that they would throw themselves down and surrender at your feet. Father, for those of us here this morning who have put on a front, Lord, who've added you to the mix. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would give them the strength, give us the ability to strip away, to lay down all that so easily entangles us so that we could more effectively pursue you. 
Lord, would you guide us and direct us? Would you prick our hearts? Would you give us the grace of repentance to turn from all the stuff we've built up? Lord, would you make us people who no longer build our castles but pursue your kingdom? I pray that you would move in our hearts, move in our minds, that you'd move in and through us, Lord. That we would no longer be seen as a people of this or a people of that, but that we would be seen as people who belong to you. Lord, that we would be seen as people of the undefeated. It's in your name we pray.